you take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We continue our study of this little letter to Titus. Coming down to the end of it soon, but not this morning. Titus chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 will be our focus this morning. What should the central mission of the church be? What should the central message of the church be? What should a church be known for? What should a church's continuing focus be? Some say the church should be about belonging. Belonging is good. We want, to, we want people to feel like they belong here. We want people to feel welcomed and known and cared for and loved. But should belonging be the central focus of the church? Lots of organizations and clubs and even businesses offer belonging. Even bars offer belonging. Remember the theme song from the 80s TV show, Cheers. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Well, everybody kind of wants that. And lots of places offer it. But should belonging be the central focus of the church? Some say the church should be about cultural reform or political activism. Take back our country. Be the change. But is the mission of the church to be cultural reform, political activism? Is that to be our central message and our central mission? In our text this morning, Paul makes clear to Titus what his focus as a pastor should be and what the mission and message of the churches all around Crete should be. And likewise, we'll see this morning what the focus, mission, and message of the church today should be. So join with me in Titus chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1, again, setting the context, but we'll focus our attention on verses 8 and 9 this morning, all right? Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, Paul tells Titus, remind them, the Christians in the various churches around Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. 
But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless." This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we want to be focused in on the right things. So many things clamor for our attention. So many different opinions about what the church is to be. None of them matter except yours. For Lord Jesus, you died that the church might live. You, through your blood and through your death, gave birth to the church. And so, Lord Jesus, as Lord and head of the church, we ask that you teach us this morning who we're to be, what we're to be doing, what our focus and message and mission are to be. Teach us, Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul makes clear to Titus in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3 what his focus as a pastor should be. And what the central message and mission of the church, each church, is to be. Our own church has a mission statement. Cross and Crown Church is a gospel-centered community committed to making disciples who love Jesus Christ and who love others in Jesus' name. We are a gospel-centered church. The gospel forms the center and core of our community. At least that is what we are striving to be. Keeping the gospel at the center of our teaching, at the center of our singing and our worship, at the center of our fellowship and our discipleship and our unity. To be a gospel-centered church is to be a biblically faithful church. That's our conviction. That's our belief. And that's our aim. So this morning, I want us to see from this passage four blessings of gospel-centered ministry. Four blessings of gospel-centered ministry. First of all, Paul shares to Titus that gospel-centered ministry is trustworthy ministry. It's trustworthy ministry. In verse 8, Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. This is Paul using a formulary statement that underscores the truthfulness and trustworthiness of what he has just been sharing with them. It functions a bit like Jesus' own statements in the Gospels when he would say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus is wanting the crowd's ears to perk up and realize whatever he's about to say is true and vitally important to me. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to Titus here. 
By using the words, this is a trustworthy statement, Paul is underscoring that what he has said here is of utmost importance and is absolutely reliable. The phrase, this is a trustworthy statement, is similar in meaning to our statements, you can count on this, or you can take that to the bank. That's the idea. It's intended to underscore the truthfulness and certainty of what has been said. Paul uses this four other times in the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. You should embrace what I'm about to say to you. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. Now that's a trustworthy statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Aren't you glad he did? That was his mission. That was his purpose. Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost today. It's a trustworthy statement. 2 Timothy 2.11. Paul says it again. He says it's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we are spiritually united with Christ at the point of faith through the Holy Spirit, if we die with Christ, then we'll also live with him. So what then is the trustworthy statement that Paul is referring to here in Titus chapter 3, verse 8? It is the gospel message. The gospel message he has just been laying out for them in glorious terms in verses 3 through 7. Again, look with me at Titus 3 through 7. This is the immediate context. This is what the trustworthy statement is. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's our old life. That's our BC days before Christ. That's the old neighborhood, right? That's where we all grew up. Until the glorious truth of verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In verses 3 through 7, Paul here is rehearsing with great theological precision the stunning truth of the miraculous transformation that has occurred in the lives of all believers in Jesus Christ. We all once were foolish. We all were once disobedient and deceived and enslaved. We were in a constant state of personal conflict with others. Because our hearts were at war, at war with ourselves, at war with others, at war with God. We were at enmity all around. But in the midst of our spiritual darkness and the depravity of our lives, the kindness and love of God for humanity appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And through the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God saved us. 
God saved us from our sins. He saved us from divine judgment that we justly deserved. He saved us from a life of spiritual darkness and futility. This salvation was not on the basis of any righteous deeds which we had done, but it was according to God's grace and mercy. Our salvation was a gift, a gift of God's grace that was completely undeserved, a gift that could never be earned. And in saving us through faith in Jesus Christ, God washed us of all of our guilt, of all of our sin. He renewed us, giving us new life within. He regenerated us through the power of the Holy Spirit who was poured out upon us richly, abundantly, lavishly, and who took up residence inside of us at the moment we believed. At the moment of our salvation, we were justified, declared righteous in God's sight. We were made heirs in that moment, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs of a glorious eternal inheritance, heirs of eternal life. The believer in Jesus has gone from the certainty of eternal judgment and separation from God to the certainty of eternal life in the presence of God where there is joy forevermore. What a transformation. What a reversal of fortunes. It's a long way from verse 3 to verse 7. That's quite a distance, spiritually speaking. It's a distance that Jesus traveled on our behalf. All of this is a trustworthy statement. This is a faithful saying, Paul says. A faithful saying, a trustworthy statement that should be believed and embraced by Titus, by the church at large. This is a trustworthy statement that can be depended upon when all else in life may seem uncertain. This is the truth that you can build your life upon. This is the truth that will never let you down. Though all else in life may fail you, this truth never will. In short, the trustworthy statement that Paul is referring to here is the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as the gospel is a trustworthy statement that can be relied upon when all else fails, even so a gospel-centered ministry A ministry centered around and centered upon the gospel results in a ministry that is trustworthy and can be relied upon to the point to point people to the truth. There are many things that clamor for our attention, and that many people are tempted to make central to the church's message and mission. Cultural reforms political activism, community service. As good as these things may be, and they all have their place, none of them are worthy of being central to the church's message or mission. It is the glorious truth of the gospel, which is a trustworthy statement, and therefore that deserves to be the centerpiece of the church's message and mission. Paul in 1 Corinthians described the gospel message as a matter of first importance. That doesn't mean that nothing else is important, but it does mean that this is a matter of first importance. 
priority importance. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is a matter of first importance. This is why the gospel must remain central to our fellowship, central to our doctrine, central to our unity, central to our worship, central to our preaching. Because the gospel is a completely trustworthy saying and a matter of first importance, a church that makes the gospel central to its message and mission will be a reliable and trustworthy ministry. And may God make it so among us. Second, gospel-centered ministry keeps gospel proclamation central. Next in verse 8, Paul says, And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Paul is issuing to Titus this list of marching orders here. He is to speak the truth of a gospel message repeatedly, confidently, forcefully. When Paul left Titus on the island of Crete, he had a clear mission in mind for Titus. Look back with me at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Titus 1, verse 5. Paul writes, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains. That you would set in order what remains. These churches around the island of Crete were immature. They were unhealthy. They were riddled with conflict and false teaching. They had the wrong kinds of people leading and preaching and teaching. And Titus was to go around and set things in order. And one of the primary means of accomplishing this mission would be the repeated, persistent, confident proclamation of the gospel message in all the churches of Crete. Look at Titus 2.15. These things speak, Titus. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. And what was the message that Titus was to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority? The glorious truth of the transforming power of the gospel. That is clear from the context. Look, look at the prior context of verse 15. Titus 2, 11 through 14. The prior context there says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." This was to be the message that Titus was to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and to let no one disregard him. 
There is a constant temptation in ministry to tailor the message of the pulpit toward what people want to hear. To merely dole out good advice. To give only encouraging and uplifting talks. To share practical messages about self-improvement and personal development. But this is not what we've been charged with as pastors and teachers and preachers. This is not the calling. This is not the mission. Paul was very clear about the mission and the means of establishing a healthy church. Of the mission and method of setting things in order in the churches. He wrote to Timothy in Ephesus these words around the same time. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears Tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How was Timothy to fulfill his ministry? By preaching the word, by preaching the word of the gospel, by doing the work of an evangelist, by continually, persistently, forcefully preaching the gospel again and again and again. Gospel-centered ministry keeps gospel proclamation central. It's not about self-improvement, though the gospel will improve your life. It's not about making things better for you, though things will be infinitely and eternally better for you through the gospel. But it is about declaring Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the glorious Lord who's deserving of all worship, who's deserving of our very lives. For He is the Lord of glory and the Lamb who died in our place. Thirdly, gospel-centered ministry promotes good deeds. Gospel-centered ministry promotes good deeds. Now, with all that I've said, you you may be tempted to think that gospel-centered ministry is too pie in the sky. It's just about theology and heaven and, you know, it's some eternal inheritance that I can't actually see or touch right now. That... A gospel-centered ministry is so heavenly-minded that it's no earthly good. That a gospel-centered church will produce only theology-loving Christians whose beliefs make no real impact upon their lives or upon the communities they live in. But that is so wrong. As we've seen throughout this letter to Titus, gospel-centered ministry produces gospel-centered Christians. And a gospel-centered Christian is a Christian whose life has been utterly transformed and reshaped by gospel power operative in their lives. 
And this gospel transformation results in good deeds. Good deeds that are a blessing to all. Paul wants Titus to center his ministry and his message on the life-transforming message of the gospel, as he says here in Titus 3.8, so that those who have believed God, the Christians, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. The end result, the caboose on the train of gospel-centered ministry will be Christians who are careful to engage in good deeds. Gospel-centered ministry has a way of promoting and producing good deeds, but it does so indirectly. It does so not from the outside in, but from the inside out. We do good deeds not to change us internally, but we do good deeds because we've been changed internally. We've been transformed. And as a byproduct... Good deeds are produced. Lives are transformed as the gospel is proclaimed and believed. Chapter 2 laid this out for us. Look back with me at chapter 2. You may not even have to turn the page. Remember the instruction that he gave to each segment of the church? The older men, the older women, the younger ladies, the younger men. The slaves or employees. He went through each category and he explained how the gospel will transform their lives and make them different and be a blessing to those who come in contact with them. Older men will be good examples of the faith that younger believers can follow, follow or follow. Sometimes we say follow where I'm from. You can follow me as I follow Christ. (laughs) Older women who teach what is good to the next generation of younger women. Younger women who love their husbands and children and devote themselves to loving service in the home. Younger men who are sensible, responsible, and examples of good deeds. Slaves or employees who are respectful and submissive to their employers in everything who are well-pleasing and not argumentative, as the gospel transforms individuals within the church, the basic building block of society, the family, is transformed. And from there, the corporate world is transformed as Christians go to work. Marriages are transformed as godly husbands lead their wives with love and as godly wives love and follow their husbands and bless their homes with loving nurture and service. As homes are transformed, the workplace and community are impacted positively by Christian citizens, Christian neighbors, Christian employees who live by an ethic that makes them stand out as the light of the world, as Jesus said. And thus Christians in this way are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. To adorn the gospel by the way we live. We're showing it off. The engine that drives all of this life transformation outlined in chapters 2 verses 1 through 9 is found in chapters 2, 11 through 14. And it's the gospel. It's the gospel that drives all of this life transformation. 
And concerning this gospel in verse 15, chapter 2, Paul says, These things, the gospel and its implications for life, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The gospel produces good deeds because it changes us from the inside out. There are some people who have foolishly believed and concluded and said that the world would be a better place without Christianity. You ever heard that? Christianity gets a bad rap these days. You feel it? No? Not aware? It's out there. After all, isn't Christianity responsible for terrible things like the Crusades? Like the perpetuation of all kinds of bigotry and misogyny and hate? Hasn't Christianity impeded progress in the world? Wouldn't we be better off without Christianity? Far from it, friends. If Christianity was somehow erased from history, the world would be far worse off than it is today. Now, have Christians done terrible things in the name of Christ? You better believe it. I'm not trying to gloss over any of that. But the reality is Christianity has been a powerful and positive force for good in the world. Because Christians live transformed lives and do good deeds wherever they go, wherever they are. It was Christianity that radically elevated the identity and role of women and wives in the first and second century societies. Putting them spiritually on an equal level with men. That was radical. Wild stuff. And it was controversial. People hated it. Well, the men hated it. That was Christianity that radically elevated the identity and role of women as fellow image bearers and co-heirs with Christ right alongside men. It was Christianity that saved countless lives of innocent, unwanted babies in Roman culture who were routinely abandoned and left for dead or taken into slavery. That was a Roman practice known as child exposure. You didn't like your kid. You didn't want to have another kid. You had a girl instead of a boy. You just take them out by the city dump. You leave them there. They'll either die of exposure or they'll be picked up and sold into the lifetime of slavery. That's how an enormous number of slaves were produced in Roman society. It was Christians who went out and found those babies and saved them and took care of them and raised them as their own. Why? Because they're image bearers. Why? Because Christians know the truth. Christians are God taught to love. Christians are God taught to sacrifice for the sake of another because that's what Christ has done for us. Christianity even gave rise to foster care and adoption movements 
that we continue to immensely benefit from today. Not only that, Christianity gave dignity to slaves and promoted their fair treatment as fellow image bearers. And in saying that slaves were fellow image bearers, they, Christianity effectively put a poison pill into the whole system of slavery. Ensuring ultimately, ultimately slavery's demise. Christianity was at the center of the development of healthcare training and healthcare systems and the establishment of life saving hospitals around the world, which is why so many hospitals have the word Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian in their names. You think that just happened? You think they wanted free advertising? No, there was an impetus within them. A spirit-wrought love for others and compassion to heal the sick, to care for the weak. These are just a few of the examples of the cultural transformation that has come from the lives of Christians living out gospel-transformed lives in their communities and doing good deeds. And we'll celebrate for all eternity the difference the gospel of Jesus Christ made in a depraved and darkened world. We don't know the half of it. But all of this is true because of the life-transforming effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ on individuals and the good deeds that they go out and do as a result. The gospel transforms us from the inside out, giving us new desires, new loves, new purpose in life. The gospel causes us not only to love Jesus, but to love others in Jesus' name. For Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake, And that inevitably produces good deeds in the communities in which Christians live. These good deeds vividly testify to the power of the gospel to change lives. Gospel-centered ministry promotes and produces good deeds. Fourthly and finally, gospel-centered ministry keeps the plain things the main things. Gospel-centered ministry keeps the plain things of Scripture the main things of ministry. Look with me at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. While there were things that Titus was to focus upon and be careful to center his ministry around, there were other things that Paul wanted him to carefully avoid. Titus was to avoid foolish controversies. These were disputable matters that roiled the churches. They, they just you know, threatened to split the churches over these things. Issues that produce controversies and quarrels. Things that some people love to bring up just to argue about. Your little pet doctrine. Your little pet issue. The same kinds of issues, divisive issues, were present with Timothy in the church at Ephesus. 
That's why Paul wrote Timothy and said in 2 Timothy 2.23, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. One of the real problems in the churches on the Isle of Crete were false teachers who had made their way into the churches and into the positions of leadership and into the pulpits and they were leading many astray, teaching all kinds of wild things that were divisive. Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. Just turn the page, perhaps. Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, windbags, especially those of the circumcision, that is, Jews, Jewish purported believers who had snuck in, but they were actually legalists, pointing people away from the gospel into a merit-based system of salvation, a works-based salvation. They must be silenced, he says in verse 11, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So Titus was to avoid these foolish controversies and those who teach them. Titus was also to avoid genealogies. Now it's hard to say exactly what this was, but it was probably some kind of Jewish form of interpretation of the scriptures based on both the Old Testament as well as extra biblical stories. Stories that aren't in the Bible, that aren't authoritative, that aren't reliable or trustworthy. But they would teach those things right along with the scriptures. Blending them and mixing them. Teaching false things. They also had a preoccupation with fanciful speculations based upon family trees and genealogies. Now, we don't really know exactly what all that was, but it wasn't the truth. It wasn't what the church is to be centered upon. It wasn't even in the Bible. You know how many churches gather today and they'll barely reference the Scriptures? They may not even open the Bible. May God protect us from such things. No, these false teachers were fascinated by genealogies. Things not in the scripture. We're fascinated by similar things. Whether it be numerology or Enneagram. We have our own things that sidetrack us from the scriptures. Titus 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. They're turning people away from the gospel. Teaching Jewish myths and the commandments of men, legalism, and fanciful stories that entertain. Next, Titus was to avoid strife. This refers to all kinds of arguments, quarrels, dissensions, discord, and rivalries that came from these theological controversies. Again, Timothy faced similar challenges in Ephesus. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.3, and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. Because of all this internal strife, Paul told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Less speculation, less strife, more forgiveness, more kindness, more tenderheartedness. Finally, Titus was to avoid disputes about the law. Literally, these are scribal battles. Battle of the pins. Battle of the nerds. Word battles. Scribal battles. 2 Timothy 2.14, again, Timothy had the same challenges. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Quit wrestling over words. Which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. 1 Timothy 1.6 Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. It's fruitless. When the gospel is placed at the center of the message and mission of the church, the church will be focusing on both the plain things and the main things of Scripture and of the faith. Keep the gospel central. Keep Christ at the center. I've said it before, but I love this quote from Alistair Begg, and it's worth sharing again. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. The main things of the scriptures are the plain things of the scriptures. And the plain things of the scriptures are the main things of the scriptures. In other words, it's the central tenets of Christianity that we must keep central to our life, to our church, to our fellowship, and to our teaching. The central tenets of the scriptures are laid out for us in Things like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's the central message of the church, summarized for us in just a few words. Likewise, our church's 10-point statement of faith summarizes very well the central beliefs of our church, of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and really the central beliefs of Christians for all time. It's a great statement of belief. These statements and others like them are helpful in summarizing Christian doctrine and in laying out the central truths of Scripture. Now there, don't be... 
misunderstanding. There are many other things that we believe, but they are not the main things because they are not the plain things. For instance, the details surrounding the return of Jesus. While the return of Jesus is a main thing because it's a plain thing, the details of it, how it's all going to work out, when, the timing, all of it, those are not exactly the plain things. If they were the plain things, we'd all agree on it. And so while the return of Jesus is a main thing, the details of that return are not. That's Paul's concern here in verse 9. That these controversies about tertiary issues, secondary issues, debates about secondary things would only produce strife and division within the church body and would be fruitless. Al Mohler, years ago, wrote a very helpful blog post about how we can do theological triage. You go to the hospital or on a war front, they may do triage to say, okay, who's a first order patient? Who's a second order patient? Who's more severe? Who needs immediate treatment? Who can't really be helped? He's encouraging us to think theologically in those terms, doing theological triage and saying, what's a first order item? What's an item that must be believed in order to be a Christian? What is absolutely essential to the Christian faith? And what's second order or third order that are less important, less central, still important, but less important? Those first order issues, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. These are all first order issues. And they are issues which we must coalesce around. And that if we don't believe it, we're not going to be in unity and fellowship together. But those second order issues, those third order issues, are issues that we can disagree on. We can have conversations about and yet still enjoy fellowship together. Because we'll be in heaven together. Why? Because we believe the plain things, and we've made them the main things. Gospel-centered ministry keeps us from making second-order and third-order doctrines the main thing, and it keeps us from separating from one another on debatable matters. By the way, I put that Al Mohler article, linked it in the sermon notes on the app. Gospel-centered ministry solidifies our unity around the most central and important truths of the Christian faith, the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel-centered ministry helps us to ensure that the main things remain the plain things and the plain things remain the main things. The world desperately needs gospel-centered ministry because the world desperately needs the gospel. They don't need self-help. There's plenty of that out there. They don't need four steps to being more successful. There's plenty of that out there. They need the gospel. The church of today desperately needs gospel-centered ministry as well because Christians stand in constant need of preaching the gospel to themselves. 
of reminding ourselves of what we know to be true and trustworthy and reliable that we can build our lives upon. The truth that Jesus is Lord. The truth that Jesus is Savior. The truth that Jesus is King. We begin our walk as Christians by the gospel and we only continue our walk as Christians by the gospel. May the Lord help us as a church to keep the gospel central to all we do so that we may keep the main things of our church the plain things of our church and the plain things of Scripture the main things of our church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is so clear on the gospel. We are not saved by human effort, by works, by individual merit. If that was the case, we would be hopeless indeed, for none of us, none of us meets the perfect, righteous, holy standard of God. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have met that standard. That you, throughout your life and ministry, always did what was pleasing to the Father and you fulfilled all righteousness. So that you could go to the cross and die on our behalf as a substitute, a sacrifice for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that through faith in you we are justified and declared righteous in God's sight and robed, as it were, with the very righteousness of Christ himself. What glorious truth. Thank you, too, for the truth that you don't leave us in this world unchanged, but that you begin a work of transformation through the outpouring of the riches of the Holy Spirit upon us. Thank you, Spirit, for your internal work producing good deeds in our life, testifying to the glorious power of the gospel. Lord, make us a more and more faithful people, a more and more faithful church with the gospel at the center. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.